Ah, yes, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. Verses 9 and 10 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then he answers, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word line upon line. We are going to continue, pick up、uh, where we left off in the book of Revelation. We've covered up to chapter 8. We're picking up in chapter 9. There is an archive、um, that's available at cgi.org slash webcast, so you can go back and catch up with us.、Uh, but I will give a little bit of a review before I jump into chapter 9 this evening. We'll open with a quick、uh, word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you just so joyful to you that. Uh, you, the creator of this massive universe,、uh, you look down upon the earth, and specifically, you look down upon us, your children, and you allow us to call you Father. And you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, who willingly sacrificed himself for us to redeem us. And we are in this first fruits harvest. And we just thank you, God, for the, for the wonderful privilege of being among the first fruits. And the wonderful privilege of helping Christ redeem the fall harvest. We thank you, Father, for your word. It's、uh, sweet like honey in our mouths, but it's bitter in the belly when we fully understand the, the significance of man's rebellion against you. And we do pray, God, for your mercy. We pray for your blessing now as we continue in this、uh, wonderful book, the book of Revelation. We claim the blessing that is promised to us to read it, to hear it. And to do and to keep those things that are written therein. We thank you, Lord. We ask your blessing now in the name of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ.、Uh, so we want to continue in、um, chapter nine. Just to remind you, in chapter one, we were introduced to this、uh, notion that Christ is opening up to our understanding things that are going to take place shortly. And he does that through. Uh, the Apostle John, and he, he instructs John to write the things that he sees as well as the things that he hears. And so this scroll is then written for us of everything that John witnessed. 
But Christ makes it clear right at the beginning that this message to John is signified. And what that means is it is delivered to John, the future, the, un the unfolding of the future is delivered to John in a series of signs. It's signified. It is, it is highly symbolic. So we have to be careful as we read Revelation to remember that much of Revelation, I say 90% of it, is, is presented to us in symbols. And so we have to be careful about what we take literally and what we see as symbolic. Um, we see in chapter 1 Christ moving amongst the seven candlesticks, which are symbolic of the church. And then in chapters 2 and 3, before we get into the vision that is given to John, we get these personal epistles, personal letters from Jesus Christ to his church. And, and these are, you know, the, the New Testament is made up of many epistles from the apostles. But in this case, these are uh, seven epistles from Jesus Christ himself. So we really get to understand the mind of Christ and, and his concern for the church. And we get this very clear sense that we have work to do. But as we do this work, we have to clean up our act. And we have to think congregationally. We have to look at our congregation and evaluate our congregation the way Christ would evaluate it and use as uh, hints and helps his evaluation of these seven churches so that we can see what matters to Christ and what concerns him, what angers him, and what delights him. And, and understanding that, we have an opportunity then to ensure that we clean up our act. Because the worst thing is for us to be out preaching, uh, doing this gospel uh, witness, and at the same time, we're, we're, we're deceived. We may not be deceived doctrinally, but we're deceived behaviorally. And we're engaging in behaviors that anger Christ and that put us in the category of his wrath. So that's uh, chapters 2 and 3, these epistles to the churches. In chapter 4, we saw the throne room of God. And we got this very clear sense that for all of the chaos that is going to be unleashed upon the earth in these final days, and this chaos that we get to see beforehand in the book of Revelation, for all of this chaos, we got to see very clearly in chapter 4 that God is seated on his throne and that he is in control of all of these events. And that is very encouraging to us, and it's going to give us the, the um, focus that we need on God to get through the difficult times ahead, knowing that everything is, is orchestrated and happening according to his will. In chapter 5, we saw that no one was worthy to open this scroll, to, to loose the seven seals, so that God's will could be done, and God's will being the punishment of the wicked, the end of wickedness upon the earth, but also, most importantly, the redemption of Israel, and really through Israel, all of mankind. And so John wept because there was nobody in heaven, and there was nobody on the earth, and there was nobody under the earth uh, who had previously lived and died. Uh, nobody was worthy to open this scroll, and so it seemed to John like the, the wickedness of the earth would just continue on and on and on, and there was no chance of redeeming mankind. But Christ was on his way. He was not in heaven, he wasn't on the earth, and he wasn't in the earth. He was on his way from earth to heaven. And when he arrived in heaven, he was found worthy. He is the only one that is worthy to redeem mankind with his blood. There's this sinless uh, being who has the right to judge the wickedness of man and the right to redeem Israel and the rest of mankind through Israel. So because of that worthiness, we then see the, the, the scroll being opened, the seals of the scroll being opened one seal at a time. And that began in chapter 6, and we saw with the first four seals, the four horsemen. And we saw it all begins with deception this imposter riding on a white horse, but being given victory, and, and the earth more or less surrendering to this false, false leader, false um, messiah. And as a result of that, the world then being plunged into war and conflict and famine and pestilence, and, and there's all of this uh, darkness and death. And then the fifth seal 
we saw not so much the martyrdom of the saints, more the patience of the saints, because the martyrdom of the saints has been occurring through these first four seals. You know, the, the Christ said there's going to come a time when people will think they're doing God's service when they're killing you. Well, that's deception. And so right from the very first seal introduces the martyrdom of the saints. And so while these first four seals are being um, unveiled, the saints are being martyred. In the fifth seal, we see their patience. They are crying out. They're begging for God to avenge their death. And God says, not yet. There are more that need to be added to your number. Then we see the sixth seal, which was the signs in the, in the, in the heavens, in the sun and the moon and the stars, which is what Christ told us to look out for. Basically, anybody who's setting up an empire, anybody who's saying that Christ is here before the signs in the heavens, it's all false. And the elect must not be deceived. No, no matter how miraculous it looks, no matter how good it looks, Satan appears as an angel of light. We mustn't be deceived. What Christ says to look for is the signs in the heavens. And what we see with the sixth seal, when these signs in the heavens occur, a great earthquake on, on the earth, is man has lost control. These mighty men who are establishing their palaces and their kingdoms and their empires, and they look like they have absolute control over the earth. They lose control with the sixth seal. And that's the signal to us that the day of the Lord is coming. And that's what takes us then into chapter 8. But before we get to chapter 8, which is the seventh seal being revealed, there's this uh, uh, interlude, this, this uh, parenthetical chapter, which is uh, Revelation chapter 7. And in Revelation chapter 7, John hears 144,000 saints being sealed, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. When he turns and looks, he doesn't see 144,000. He sees a great multitude that cannot be numbered, and he doesn't see a great multitude from the 12 tribes of Israel. He sees a great multitude from all ethnicities, from all nations, from all peoples of the earth that have all repented, that have all washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. And these are they who have come through this great tribulation. And so the first fruits harvest is Israel. But Israel is, is really a symbol of the wife of Christ. And Christ has, through his blood, opened the, door, the doors of Israel to all mankind. And so mankind is grafted into Israel from all tribes and from all peoples and from all ethnicities. And this represents the first fruits harvest. And this is just like a, an, a, an inset chapter to encourage us to say that there is victory in the Lamb. And now then we go back to this sequence of events in chapter 8 with that, that chapter actually beginning with silence. So now the seventh seal is going to be opened, and that begins in chapter 7. And when, he, when Christ opens this seal, there's silence. And there's this, this great anticipation of what is going to happen now that God is going to unleash his wrath upon mankind. And so we saw then in chapter 8 the opening up of these seals. And maybe what we'll do here is just pick up the story then in uh, chapter 8. And again, just remember that this is highly symbolic and we have to be very careful about um, the symbols and when we're seeing symbols and when we're seeing things to take literally. So here we see, and just a reminder that this is all future and we get to see it through this revelation, but it's signified, meaning it's highly symbolic. And we, what we're seeing are symbols, and we have to make sure that we're interpreting symbols correctly. Um, and if we can't interpret them correctly, we're being patient. But, but a, lot, a big key to the interpretation of these symbols is, is most of them are rooted in the Old Testament. And so we have to go back to the Old Testament and see the linkages from the Old Testament in order to understand what these symbols are. And, and also the beauty of, of Revelation as this final uh, revelation from God is there are there are over 500 references to the Old Testament 
and all of the open promises, all of the unfulfilled promises in the Old Testament converge into the book of Revelation, and they are fulfilled by God in Revelation. And so the, this final revelation shows us how faithful God is to his word. Unlike what uh, the Muslims want us to believe that the Quran is the final revelation from God, which takes a complete sharp left turn and, and completely dismisses everything in the Old Testament. In fact, wants us to throw the Bible away, to burn it, will punish anybody who under Sharia who holds a Bible and just completely dismiss and basically God becomes unfaithful. Whereas Revelation, we see how faithful God is to his word. So just picking up the final part of Revelation chapter 8 as we move into chapter 10, because in verse 10 of chapter 8, this third angel sounds, and there fell a great star from heaven. So there's going to be another star falling in chapter 9. But here in chapter 8, we see this uh, star falling from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and the third part uh, and upon the fountains of waters and the name of that star is called Wormwood and when we covered chapter 8 we went back to the prophecy by Jeremiah about this uh, Wormwood the poisonous Wormwood and how the waters were going to be made bitter and that was part of God's uh, wrath upon his unfaithful people and so here we see that reference in chapter 8 and then the fourth angel sound, uh, sounds his trumpet and the sun is uh, smitten, and a third part of the moon, and the stars are darkened. We see that. And then in verse 13, introducing now, moving us into chapter 9. And I beheld, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven. So again, John is writing what he sees and what he hears. And so he sees this angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe! Woe, woe. So these are tremendous curses that are coming down upon the earth. And this angel is just pronouncing with a loud voice these curses. And for anybody at this stage who is not sealed by God, they are going to be subjected to these curses. So this again is what's going to give us patience as, as wicked men wax worse and worse. And as they set up their empires, and they spread, and they, they, they confuse victory with truth, they think because they're victorious, therefore their, their doctrines are true, uh, we understand that that is completely false. That Satan is given this sort of last gasp, and, and he's able to set up this uh, kingdom, and it's going to shine, and it's gonna, everybody's going to be worshipping him. Uh, however, we know that it's, it's, it's time stamped, it's limited, and it's going to come to an end. And here we see that these people who follow the devil, uh, if they don't have the seal of God in their forehead, they are going to be subject to these three woes. He says, woe, 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 uh, no, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. So angels five, six, and seven are yet to sound, and now we're going to hear the angel, the fifth angel, sound his So this fifth angel sounds, and the scripture says, And I saw a star fall from heaven. So this is a different star. The first star that we saw in, in verse 10 of chapter 8 was a star called Wormwood, which caused the waters to become bitter. Here, this angel sounds, and a star falls from heaven unto the earth. And this angel that falls to the earth, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. So we know that Satan is going to be bound in this pit eventually when we get to Revelation chapter 20, but here this pit is being opened. And, and this abyss was referred to in, in Luke when we studied Luke, when these, this demon-possessed man was engaging Christ, and Christ asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, 
because many devils had entered into this man. So it was the name of this was Legion. And notice this, that Legion, these, these demons, they begged Christ that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. So this abyss is some sort of a horrid place that these demons were begging Christ, don't send us to the abyss. Don't send us to the abyss, anywhere but the abyss. And, and now, and so they were sent then, I think we remember the story, that they were sent into uh, some, some swine, and the swine then read, uh, ran into the, the, the lake and they were choked. But imagine the horror of this place, that demons don't even want to go there. They're begging Christ, don't send us there. So this first woe is this angel coming down to earth, and he opens the bottomless pit. And from this pit, we see smoke arise. So smoke arises out of this pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And because of this smoke, the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And again, whether this is literal or symbolic, we have to be careful that, you know, we have to really understand that all of this is really symbolic, but this could be literal. Uh, but it, it means something. It has to be, there's an understanding of this darkness and, and this woe that's coming upon the earth and, and the light is being blocked uh, from the earth. And he says here in verse 3, there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And this is a great curse upon the earth that these locusts are now come. So first, the, the, the abyss is opened. This smoke comes out of this horrible place that even demons don't want to go there. This smoke comes out of this bottomless pit. And from the smoke then, these locusts emerge. And the locusts come upon the earth. And unto the locusts was given power as the scorpions of earth have power. So this is a very poisonous sting, a very painful sting, and these locusts are coming to torment men with the sting of their, 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 their tail. Now, the locusts is a call back to Exodus, that when God's people were, were bound by Pharaoh, who was symbolic of the devil, and Egypt was symbolic of the devil's empire, God moved to release his people from that bondage. And he did that through a series of plagues. And you remember in Exodus here, chapter 10, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt. And so we now are, are the, the world has become Egypt. And, and Satan is, is the Pharaoh of this earth. But here God released his people, saying, stretch out your hand. And he broke the power of Pharaoh through these plagues. Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail has left. And I suppose uh, it's important for us to realize here that the, the um, locusts, are attacking the herbs, or, or they attacked the herbs and the, and the grass and the green things in Egypt. And so that would create a great famine. But there's a difference now with these locusts that are coming out of the pit or out of the smoke and coming upon the earth. But just note that in Egypt, that the locusts were focused on the green grass, the herbs. So it carries on here to say, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail has left. So the hail damaged a lot of the, the, the herb. Whatever is left now, the locusts are coming to take that. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested 
in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there were no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So this uh, was a very terrible plague, and it weakened the Pharaoh's power and brought down Egypt, but the focus was on every herb of the land. And there remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field through all the land of Egypt. And even David in Psalms refers back to it. He also gave their increase, their increase unto the caterpillar and their labor unto the locust. But now when we come back to John's vision in Revelation 9, it was commanded the locusts that they should not hurt the grass of the earth. So this is a very different plague. It's much more intense. These locusts of Moses' time, they specifically were to attack the green herb. Here, in this vision that John has, they're commanded not to hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And we remember from last time when we read in Ezekiel that there was an angel that went through the midst of the city and marked upon the foreheads of the men that were sighing and crying for the abominations and that had the, the desire to be in compliance with God their foreheads were marked with this seal. And in the same time, in this end time, those who are faithful to God are sealed. Some of us, that sealing is our martyrdom. But some obviously will still be alive here, and they are sealed in such a way that none of this harm comes upon them. This harm is very purpose-specific, and it is for the wicked. And, it was, and to them it was given that they should not kill them but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. So this plague was, was a, an awful plague. And, and these locusts, when they multiply and curse the land, they are voracious. And they just tear everything and they just destroy it. But these locusts represent an, an army of men that have powerful stings. And, and these stings are not to kill men, they're just to torment them. They're just to torment the men. And uh, he says in those days, verse 6, so it's going to be the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death, but they won't find it. And they shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And Job himself had this experience. And he asked the question, why is light given to him that's in misery? He couldn't understand why he couldn't just die. And life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it doesn't come. And they dig for it more than for hid treasures. They just want to die so much that if you saw somebody dig, if they knew that treasure was in the land and they were digging for this treasure and you saw how they were very, very highly motivated to dig for the treasure, Job was saying in the condition that he was in, he would, he would dig for death more enthusiastically than anybody who's digging for treasure. And that's going to be the case here, that this curse is going to be so horrible that when these people are suffering, they're just going to want to die for five months, but they can't die. Carrying on in, in Revelation 9, verse 7. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses. So John is seeing something here. And he's saying these locusts that came upon the land, that they're not going to hurt the grass, they're just going to torment men. They were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. So John's just not quite sure what he's seeing here, but he's seeing these horses that are set up for battle, 
and they're wearing the, they're wearing crowns, but they have the faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron. And then he says the sound of their wings, so they have wings, was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And a lot of people uh, feel or have, have uh, uh, guessed or speculated that these things that John was seeing, these horses and the sound of chariots, uh, they believe that these could be military uh, machinery. Uh, this could be, uh, and, and I think that's a very sound interpretation, but again, we have to be careful. It's really the symbolism here that God is moving to punish men. And so could it be that these are all uh, an army? Whatever it is, they're going to torment men for five months, and men are going to wish they could die, but they cannot die because of these locusts that are coming up out of the earth and tormenting them for five months. And so, you know, is this a helicopter sound that he's hearing? Uh, the sound of chariots uh, running to battle? And, uh, uh, and it sounds like many horses galloping. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, that means destruction. But in the Greek tongue, his name is Apollyon. So coming out of the bottomless pit are these demons. And in particular, this, all of these locusts that are coming out that are, that are uh, tormenting men, there's this king over them. And the king, his name is destruction. So we know that this is Satan. In, in the Greek, it's uh, Abaddon. And in, uh, sorry, in the Hebrew, it's Abaddon, and in the Greek, Apollyon. And uh, here in Job, again, uh, Job referred to this same Abaddon, that it's destruction. So, so whoever this king is, his name is Destruction. And woe unto the men that do not have the seal of God in their forehead, for they will be subject to this destruction, this Abaddon. Now, this plague, these locusts that are coming upon the land, Joel speaks of them, and he makes it clear that it is an army. And I actually want to go to, um, I'm going to go, to, I've been reading from the King James, but I actually want to read from the, um, I want to read from the, uh, uh, the NASB, the, the North American Standard Bible. But before I do that, I just see my battery running down. I'm going to be right back, just uh uh, hold on for me for a moment, and I'll be right back. go just to avert a potential disaster there uh, so I want to read now from the NASB uh, Job 1 as he speaks of these locusts and he says here hear this O elders and listen all inhabitants of the land so, so he wants to ask them a question here and he says this has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. So this is like something that has just never happened before. And like this is something that's going to be the talk of the town for generations. And then he says this, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. 
Awake drunkards and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. So for the, this, this, uh, these locusts are so thorough that they just wipe out everything. And then he explains what these locusts are. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. And again, he sees what John saw, or John sees what he saw. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and its fangs of a lioness. Now, what's really interesting, where he says here, uh, these sort of four different types of locusts. He says there's a gnawing locust, there's a swarming locust, there's a creeping locust, and there's a stripping locust. Interestingly, locusts go through multiple phases. And so the way these uh, invasions occur is first they hatch, then they, they while, while they're babies, they're consuming the sort of the creeping locust, then they start to hop, then they form their wings. And so they're, they're terrible, they're devastating while they're creeping locusts. And they just strip everything bare. But once they form their wings, look out. Because then they can migrate. They can leave the land where they were first initially populated, and now they can migrate and land in, in another land. And then they lay their eggs, and then the cycle begins again. It's the creeping one, then they're hopping, then they form their wings, and then they migrate again. And they just completely destroy everything while they're going through these, these stages and these cycles. And so he makes it clear to us that what he's actually seeing here, are it's not so much the locust as the symbolism of the locust that these locusts are an invading army, and they are thorough. And you know, Habakkuk saw this as well when, when he say, says that he's gonna, God is going to work, work in, his, in his day, which he would not believe, though it were told him. So Joel says here in chapter 2 now, Blow you the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. So the focus is on the holy land. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is near at hand. So this day of the Lord, which we know is really the seventh seal, uh, when that is, the, and, and that we have seven trumpets now, and then we have these three woes, uh, the focus is on the land. The focus is on the land in, this, in the day of the Lord, that this holy land, a day of darkness and of gloominess. We saw that with the smoke coming up and darkening the sun, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people, these are the locusts, a great people and a strong. There has never, there has not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. That's why Joel says, Joel says, have you ever seen this? You need to tell each generation about it. So this is a nation that migrates, that that's going to just really destroy God's people, you know, whoever has, does not have the seal of God in their foreheads. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yes, and nothing, they're very thorough, nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. So this, again, is what John was seeing. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devours the stubble, as a people set in battle array. So he goes on to say, Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men, they shall climb the wall like men of war, and they shall march everyone on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. And remember, we have the context that this army is demon-led, that, that the, 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 the key to the bottomless pit has been opened, and Apollyon is now ruling and taking this army and leading it. And so this, yes, it's human beings, but they're being led by the devil. Okay, we'll just come down here to um, 
continuing again where, where we said in verse 11, it's a polyon. Now in verse 12, he writes, one woe is past and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. So this is like as if one woe were not enough, we still have two more to go. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So he's telling us what he heard and what he saw. So when the sixth angel sounded, he hears a voice from the altar, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And so now this woe is loosening these four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And it is interesting that we'll see here with Euphrates that Euphrates really, uh, we'll see in Genesis, this is the river Euphrates. It is the border of the land that was promised to Israel. And again, that's where Joel is seeing that the focus of the locusts was the Holy Land. And here now we see with this second woe that now these angels that are bound at the river Euphrates are released, and it looks like they're released in order to come into the Holy Land. I don't think they'd be released to go away from the Holy Land. That God has a controversy with his land and the people that are on his land and the, the, the filth that is taking place in his land. And you'll see here in Genesis, uh, 15. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto your seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt, that's the Nile River, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So all of that land God has given to Abraham and to his descendants. But there's a covenant, and in order for them to be in the land, they must be holy. And if they're not holy, then they're going to be exiled, they're going to be subjugated, they're going to be destroyed in the land. And God has given them every chance to repent. And then a seal is put upon the forehead of those who repent. And anybody who's left in this land that doesn't have the seal of God upon their foreheads, they are, being, they are getting the full treatment of these curses. And again, in Deuteronomy, when Moses is writing then to the children of Israel and telling them to take their journey, and to go into the Mount of the Amorites, unto all the places there, in the plain, in the hills, in the vale, in the south, the sea, to the land of the Canaanites, unto Lebanon, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So Euphrates is this border of the land that was given to Abraham. And again, he repeats it in Deuteronomy 11.24. Again, go all the way up to the river Euphrates. In Joshua, same thing. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So the river Euphrates is the border of the land that was given to God's people. And now God is acting to punish his people uh, for their rebellion. And now whoever doesn't have the seal, now we're seeing these angels that are loosed. And so here in verse 15, the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month, and a year. So God is doing everything right on time, and they are loosed to slay the third part of men. So this is going to be a massive destruction that's going to take place now. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. So this is a massive uh, army, 200,000, basically 200 million men. And I heard the number of them. So he's telling us what he saw, also telling, telling us what he heard. So that's a massive army. And this is, this is all specific. It's all timed. There's a very specific hour and day that they're released, that these four angels are released, and now this army is coming. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth, and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. And out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. So, you know, are we going to see horses with lions' heads? Or are these symbols 
of what of the force that John is seeing, and he just wants us to understand that this this is going to be this is going to be a a thorough destruction, and there will be no escape. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. And again, that's why there's sort of this uh, potential that these are uh, military machines that are able to fire uh, both from their mouths, the front, and from the back, from their tails. Uh, so that, I think that's a very uh, reasonable speculation. For their tails were like unto serpents, and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands. So whoever these men are that are in this land, they just won't repent. They just won't repent. That they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. So humankind has been deceived and there's all different forms of deception. But what's interesting to me here is John begins that they should not worship devils. Devils are real things. These are real beings. But the idols, all of these idols, idols of gold, idols of silver, of brass, of stone, worshiping stone and wood, these are nothing. But by bowing down to these idols, mankind is actually worshiping the devils. So idolatry is just a form of devil worship. And so these men who are worshiping these idols are actually worshiping devils. And, and because of the hold that these devils have upon men, they just won't stop. And despite all of this destruction, they're doubling down and they just won't stop. There's something, there's something that's got such a hold on them that they will not stop. Neither, John writes, repented they of their murders nor their sorceries, nor their porneia, which is any sort of sexuality outside of marriage, nor of their thefts. And I, I, you know, I think to myself, like, what people would be so uh, entrenched in, in this demonic worship and this worship of idolatry that they just won't stop? And it's interesting that, again, we've been talking about Islam quite a bit, and where, where exactly they fit in the prophetic uh, unfolding, we're not exactly sure, but certainly as it's spreading all over the earth, it has to be accounted for. And this 200 million man army, you know, that's a lot of people. You know, so, so what is the ideology that's motivating them? But it is interesting that Islam authorizes murder. That's a part of the religion. And people are holy murder, sacred murder. Authorizes porneia. There's sacred porneia. It authorizes theft, sacred theft. That's just, just a part of the, the jihad. But this thing is interesting, sorceries. The, is there sacred sorcery? And if you look up sorcery, the, the, the word is actually pharmakeia. And here, if you look in theirs, one of the... One of the um, primary definitions of sorcery, we think of it as magic, one of the primary definitions of it is the use or the administering of drugs. And that is very interesting because what we see with this jihad is exactly that, that there's a, there's sort of called what's called the jihad pill and, and it's called Captagon. If you do some research on Captagon, all of these jihadis that are out there fighting and they're just showing tremendous courage they're high on Captagon, and it's a drug that removes fear, and it just gives people incredible courage. And so this is something that's just being passed out in the Middle East, and, uh, and these warriors are going into battle high on Captagon. And from, from a biblical perspective, that is pharmakeia. And so, you know, again, we're speculating a little bit here. We can't be exactly sure, but we have to know that if, if this thing is taking over the earth, 
it's got to be accounted for in the book of Revelation. Exactly how and where, we can't be 100% sure, we're speculating, but that I, I do find that fascinating, that they just some, something has a hold of these men so much that they're just committed to, to murder, they're committed to pharmakeia, they're committed to porneia, and they're committed to theft. What is it exactly? And they're committed to, to idolatry. Uh, what is it exactly? You know, we, we have to wait and see. But that ends uh, chapter 9. Next week we'll go into uh, chapter 10. And, and it's just, it's heating up now. And, you know, God gave us uh, chapter 7 to encourage us so that we could see our way through all of this. And even when we uh, finished chapter 5, we jumped ahead and we read chapters 21 and 22 so that we can see how all of this ends. And it is all so, so positive. It really is sweet. But we're going through a bitter period here. And this, unfortunately, is the rebellion of mankind. And it is the hold that the devil has on mankind. But Jesus Christ has come to redeem mankind. And we have our work to do. We have to preach the gospel as a witness, as a warning. But chapter 7 should encourage us because when we read the first fruits harvest, that harvest comes from people all over the earth, from every ethnic group, from every nation, from every tongue. And so there's a lot of repentance in this first fruits harvest. And then we as the first fruit harvest are going to lead mankind to repentance with this great harvest, the fall harvest. So let's continue to work through these uh, painful periods of man's history, which are just ahead of us now. Uh, that's it for chapter 9. We'll continue next week with chapter 10. Remember, Jesus Christ is our Lord. He's our King. He's our Savior. He loves mankind. His love for mankind is in us. And we are going to preach this gospel of hope, of truth, and of salvation. Jesus Christ is Lord and King.